Tonight, we continue our study that we've been doing for the past few weeks now, uh, entitled One and Done. This is a study on the books of the Bible that only contain one chapter. Uh, we've really enjoyed this study. We hope that you have too as ministers. I know we've enjoyed it. Uh, this study has been focused on books of the Bible that maybe get overlooked from time to time in our personal study or even from our pulpits or, or from the articles we write or, or whatever the case might be, for one reason or the other, we, we tend to overlook these books of the Bible, maybe because of their length or maybe because we're on our way to just another book of the Bible and so we pass over these books. These are the books that don't get the spotlight, they don't get all the press, they don't get all of the attention that they may deserve. These are the books that you may not have handwritten notes all throughout in the, in the margins of your Bible. After years and years of, of compiled notes that you've taken as you've been at church, been at worship and Bible class. But hopefully, in our study thus far, you've already seen that these books, even though we have overlooked them, are not only worthy of our focus... A lot of times they are every bit as powerful, every bit as meaningful, every bit as worthy of our attention and our focus and our study. Tonight we continue this study looking at a book that has a very powerful application to our life. And, and I just want to speak on behalf of the ministers that have been taking part in this study. I think all of us would say that that we have been truly impacted by the studies thus far in the book of Jude and, and in the book of Obadiah and the book of Philemon and, and all these books that we've studied and, and we've gotten to look at for another time. I, I think we have gotten a lot out of it. We hope that you have too. and We hope that that continues on in our study tonight. Our study tonight takes us to the shortest book of the Bible. If you look at verse count... If you look at word count, it's going to be what we're talking about next week. But tonight our study takes us to one of the absolute shortest books of the Bible. I know that that's funny in a series that are all about one chapter books, but of the five books of the Bible that have one chapter, our study tonight is, is one of the shortest of the five. But don't let that fool you because our study tonight is going to be very powerful, but very meaningful and very applicable to our lives regardless of its size and its length, especially as we look to walk with Christ this week, our study of the book of 2 John is going to be very powerful this week. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 John. If you're wondering where that is, it's after 1 John and before 3 John. If you don't know where those are, turn to the back and then flip a little bit to the left. We're going to be studying 2 John. And the first, one, first thing we want to talk about, the book of 2 John, is verses 1 through 3. In verses 1 through 3, you're going to see the reasoning that John has for writing this book. Go ahead and read with me verses 1 through 3. John says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you 
from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. And let's just stop right there. So here, already in these first three verses, you're going to see the reasoning John has for writing this book. And just like we do with almost any study of a particular book, we have to ask a few, a set of questions. We have to ask ourselves, who wrote this book? We have to ask ourselves, who was it written to? We, we have to ask ourselves, why was this book written? And so we're going to do that very quickly tonight in our study of the book of 2 John. In the first three verses, you can find the answer to every one of those questions. First, the question is, who wrote the book of 2 John? Well, I think we have an indication just by the title of it, but let's talk about this a little bit. Who wrote the book of 2 John? Well, you have to ask yourself, who is this elder? John describes himself in verse 1 as the elder. Who could that be? Is this just an old guy? Is this an elder of the church? It could be any number of people if we limit it to that. Who is the elder described in 2 John? Well, if you look at what the scholars have to say on the matter, they are pretty much unanimous that the one who wrote 2 John is the same author of the one who wrote 1 John and the one who wrote the Gospel of John, and that is John the Apostle. John the Apostle who walked with Jesus. John the Apostle who was there for all of the miracles. And John the Apostle who, who wrote the gospel that said many of the things Jesus did. So much so that the world couldn't contain the things that Jesus did on this earth. That's the John we're talking about. We're talking about the John of 1 John who said that which we have seen, that which we have heard, we have felt with our own hands, we, we have seen with our own eyes. This is the John we're talking about. Many, many years later, towards the end of his life, here in 2 John, we're looking at John the Apostle who wrote this book. In fact, if you were to look at the Greek New Testament, not that this is in the original text, but in the Greek New Testament, those translators write Ioane Alpha, Ioane Beta, Ioane Gamma. And that what that is, is, is John A, John B, John C. That's how they title the epistles of John. It's very interesting when you look at that. So we're talking about the book, the second book, the second epistle that John wrote. Let's talk about the audience of 2 John. In fact, that's one of the most contentious things about the book of 2 John. In fact, I've had some questions about that even recently, about who is this elect lady that that John is talking about in 2 John. And, and go ahead and look in that verse. In, 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 verse, in verse 1 it says, To the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And so the question is, is, is John writing to a specific lady? A, a specific woman in the church and, and, and a specific person like that has children and, and an individual? Or is John writing to a much larger audience in scale? Is, is John writing to the brotherhood at large? And so scholars tend to go back and forth, and a lot of people die on one hill and on the other, but I just want to talk about these options here that we have before us. Let's just think about this. When we think about John and all of his writing, we know that his gospel was written to who? Whereas Luke writes his to a specific individual, and, and as Matthew writes his to a specific group of people, 
we know that John wrote his gospel to the church at large, the brotherhood at large, and, and so that they might believe Jesus was the Christ, right? So we know that John wrote his gospel to a general audience. If you were to turn to 1 John, you can see that it is not really prescribed to someone or, or, or written to someone in specific. So we know that both of those books are written to a general church at large audience. And we also know that when you look at how the word, how, how the church is described throughout the New Testament, we can see it time and time again that the church is described with feminine pronouns or feminine verbiage, right? We, we see a lot that the church is described as the bride of Christ. And we see the church described as a her. And we see the church described in these feminine ways, and so it makes sense yet again here in the book of 2 John that John would describe the church as this elect lady in this metaphor, this specific metaphor that John uses. And so many people believe that, that John wrote the book of 2 John to the church at large, to the brotherhood at large, because of these personal names that he, he shows for his love of the church. And on top of this, you can see that the book of 2 John maybe isn't written to a specific individual because it starts to use a bunch of, of, of plural verbiage. Plural words like we and, and yourselves and the plural version of the word you. Whereas if he was writing to a specific individual, it wouldn't be as plural as that. However, there are others who contend that John is writing to an actual lady and her children, that John is writing to a family here. And they call on the fact that, well, yeah, the Gospel of John and the letter of 1 John is written to the church at large, but we know very, very really that the third epistle of John is written to an individual. If you turn over a page in your Bible, perhaps you can see that 3 John, and, and, and Kyle's going to talk about this next week, 3 John is written to an individual person, so why is it so unbelievable to think that 2 John could be written to an individual person. So as you look at those options, I'm not going to try to uh, decide for you. You're going to have to do that study for yourself. But I just I want you to know that these are the options. But when I have to understand what, what, what the book of 2 John is saying and, and the context of 2 John and, and the audience of 2 John, I, I think I'm going to go with what most scholars think and that, that this is not an individual, that John is writing to the church at large. It's fair to assume that, that John, John was writing perhaps to a specific congregation because he says, your children. Who are the children of the elect lady? Who is the elect lady? The elect lady is the church. And her children are specific congregations of the church. Far more important than who wrote the book or, or who it was written to, far more important than that is, is why it was written. And that's true of, of, of any book of the Bible that we look at. It's, it's way more important for us to understand why the book was written than to understand who it was written to or who wrote it. Because ultimately it was written by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God. So as we have this preliminary stuff uh, out of the way, let's, let's actually start to talk about what 2 John is about. 
you know, it's, it's fun for Kyle and for me and, and for Craig and, and, and for Brother Gene and, and some of us to think about the scholarly aspects of, of these books and to think about uh, uh, the research involved in, in understanding some of these things. But far more important than any of that, what I care about most is why does this book matter to Ben? Why does this book matter to the church tonight? And whenever we study God's Word, if that is not the most important thing, I think we've missed the point. If we get so, uh, we, we, we forget to see uh, the forest for the trees, right? If we, if we get so lost in all of the academics or all of the scholarship and our, all, all of the, all of the ed- education and all of that different things that we don't get the message of the book itself, I think we've missed the whole point. So tonight we're going to be asking, how does 2 John apply to me? Why does 2 John, this, this one chapter book, why does it matter to me tonight? What is God trying to communicate to me tonight? The second thing about the book of 2 John is he is trying to write this book to remind them. To remind them of what they had already known. To remind them of of, of what they knew deep down in the depths of their soul about Jesus Christ. Let's continue in verse 4. It says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. As we have received commandment from the Father, and now I plead with you, lady. Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. And so as we, let's stop right there to understand this section of the book of 2 John, we have to understand that, that John is, is writing this book towards the end of the first century. All right, this, we're, we're no longer in the infancy of the church in the first few years and, and months of the Lord's church like we see in the book of Acts. In fact, we're talking 60, 65 years after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We're not talking about the infancy of the Lord's church. We're talking about a church that has been growing. A church that that has been going through different struggles and different trials for many, many decades by the time we see John write 2 John. And so when he writes this, it's interesting to see that that he is is thrilled. The Bible says that, that, that he rejoiced greatly to find that many congregations were still walking in the truth. Many of those congregations that, that had been set all throughout Asia Minor were, were still many years later walking in the truth. Let's just stop right there and ask, what does it mean to walk in the truth? What does that mean? What, what, is, second, what, what is Second John trying to communicate to us tonight? What is John trying to tell the church here in this book? What does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, he tells us exactly what it means. Here in this section, what it means to walk in truth. 
And I was actually talking to uh, Brother John Burnett this morning about Second John and, and just about John in general. And what, what's amazing about John is how he connects love and truth. John connects these two elements of the Christian faith perhaps better than anyone else in all the New Testament. Perhaps better than anyone else, other, any other New Testament writer, John connects what it means to love and what it means to be in truth more than anyone else. The way John describes it is this inseparable relationship. That there is no love without truth. And that there is no truth without love. This inseparable relationship you can see in the book of 2 John. We can see here that you cannot have one without the other. If you go back to verse 3 in the, in the former section, he says he is writing this in truth and in love. You know, sometimes in our day and age, we have a lot of people who want to focus on truth to the exclusion of love. And we see that all the time. We, we, we see people who, who mean well, perhaps. They mean well. They're standing for the truth, and, and, and they're standing for what is right, and, and they're standing for what God's Word says. But at the core of their being, in, in their heart of hearts, they could not care less about the soul that they're dealing with. They could not care less about the heart of the person that they're talking to. But as long as we stand behind the, the banner of truth, that's all that matters. Conversely, you have a lot of people who, who want to focus so much on love. They want to focus so much on, on what it means to love someone and, and show them this, this, this love that they do it to the exclusion of truth. Have you seen that before? Have you seen someone love and, and try to be such a loving person that, that the truth was no longer in them? We see it both ways and both sides of the coin, but what John is saying is you can't have it one way or the other. Because John doesn't delineate between these two, and, and the Holy Spirit through John lets us know that you cannot have one without the other. You know, if you, if you learned one thing from the writings of John, if you go to the Gospel of John, if you go to 1 John, if you go to 2 John and 3 John, if you, in, in Revelation, if you learn anything about the writings of John, you're going to see the theme of love. The theme of love is all throughout the writings of John, time and time again. Not only is John the apostle whom Jesus loved, you're going to see that John is the one who writes about love more than anyone else. When we think about love, when we think about the writing of John, he never wrote about love at the exclusion or at the expense of truth. He never wrote about love in a way that excludes truth or, or, or takes away truth. Every single time he writes about love, it's including the thought of truth. Brethren, when we think about the Christian life, love is the bedrock of Christianity, right? Love is what 
motivates us, or at least it should be. Love is what motivates us to, to follow God, and, and love is at the absolute centerpiece. It is the absolute bedrock. It is the absolute focal point of our walk with Christ. But you know what John makes clear here in 2 John? It's something we need to make clear with ourselves tonight before we leave. Something we need to make clear is there is a difference between love and tolerance. Those two things are, 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 are different. And our world seems to have that messed up. Our, the, the world around us seems to, to try to convince us that you cannot have love if you are not tolerant to the people around you, to the things around you. And, and, and if you're going to have love, you, you also have to have tolerance. But John makes it clear that there is a difference between love and tolerance. John makes it clear that love without truth was never love to begin with. Let me say that again. When you think about your walk with God and your walk with Christ, love without truth was never love to begin with. When we think about that and the implications of that, we're going to see here in the book of 2 John, him talk about this a little bit more. But in our day and age, we're, you see it all the time that, that many people, many Christians even, bow to the altar of tolerance instead of truly walking in love. The Bible tells us it doesn't matter what the world might say about a certain issue. The Bible tells us what God thinks about certain issues. And so therefore, our world today it tries to convince us not to matter about that, or not to care about that, 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 that this doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what God's Word says, you still need to be tolerant. We are told and we are convinced so many different ways that it is unloving to take a stand against certain lifestyles. I don't care if the Bible calls it a sin. I don't care if the Bible condemns it. It's No, that doesn't matter anymore. What matters is how tolerant you can be. What matters is how much love you can show someone around you. Whether it is sin around you or sin among you, it doesn't matter. Just be tolerant. The book of 2 John talks about this. John makes the definition of love clear. He couldn't have been more clear in the book of 2 John. Look what he says. He says, this is love. That we show tolerance to everyone around us. Is that what he says? He says, this is love. That we walk according to the commandments. John says, this is what love is all about. It's about walking according to the commandments. And this isn't something John hasn't let us, know in, let us in on before. If you turn back to John chapter 14 and verse 15, what does Jesus say? If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. What does John say in, in John chapter 14 and verse 21? Jesus, he records Jesus saying, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What does John say in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5? Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. What does he say in 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3? John, yet again, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Notice every single one of those examples, five or six examples, all come from the pen of John. John said all of that. John recorded all of that from the words of Jesus. The Holy Spirit moved John to write about the, the relationship between love and truth. John implores the church here in 2 John not only to know the commandments, not only to hear the commandments, not only to be able to say what the commandments are, but to walk in them. And then and only then, would they know what true love was all about? True love is walking in the truth. Walking in the commandments of God. The third thing we can see in, in the next section of the book of 2 John is, is John is, is imploring them to remove the impurities in the church. Let's, let's, let's read verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. You know, much of the latter books of the New Testament deal with false teaching in, in some manner. It's either dealing with false teaching or false teachers. And, and there's a reason for that. We just talked about how there, the church was not an infant anymore. It, it, it had grown over the course of many decades. And, and because of that time, there had been people who came into the church who crept in unnoticed like those ravenous wolves Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. And so the apostles, as they're writing their epistles to the church and to individuals, they recognize that. You can see John does the same thing here. He knows that it's going to be harder and harder for the church to stay pure, to stay true, to stay holy, or as John puts it here in 2 John, to continue 
walking in the truth. Probably the most popular verse about false teaching and about false teachers is 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, this is the verse. If you're a preacher and this isn't one of your favorite verses, you're in the wrong life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Even though this is the most popular verse about false teaching or about false teachers, the book of 2 Peter talks about false teaching in 2 Peter chapter 2. Jude talks about false teaching like we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Jude 4. John talks about false teaching in 1 John chapter 4. And here yet again in 2 John, you can see that the elder, the elder John is reminding the church... He's reminding the church about what Paul said all those years ago and, and, and what all Jesus said all those years ago about false teaching. He reminds them how important it is for the church to stay pure, for the church to stay holy and, and without blemish in some of the things we've been talking about on Wednesday night in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. John says we, we can't have gone through all that we've gone through for it to lead to this. John talks about all the things that they had fought hard for. He warns them not to lose it now. He says we can't lose that which we have fought so hard for. We can't sit, sit idly by and watch the elect chosen lady, the church, be destroyed in the name of tolerance. John says, you know, we have fought for this. We, we have taught against this for however many years. In some respects, we have died for this. We have sacrificed for this, and here we are, knowing the common truth that we have together as children of God. Here we are, losing it all now. How sad would it be for us to lose everything here right now at this point? He says, if we allow anything outside of Christ to enter into Christ's church, then what was it for? What was all that time devoting ourselves to purifying our souls? What was that for? What was it for for us to focus on becoming holy as He is holy? What was that for? What was it all for if we're just going to give up now? Don't give up. John says, don't give up. He says, don't even receive them into your home. He says, don't even give them a greeting. If you do so, you share in their evil deeds. Man. What John is saying, he's saying anyone who opposes the doctrine of Christ should be in opposition to the church. And anyone who is in opposition to the church 
should not be a serious part of a brother or sister's life. Those who are in opposition to the Lord's church should not have intimate relationships with those who are in the Lord's church. That sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? But yet, time and time again, it's, it's not, so, not so common since in our day and age. The Bible tells us that the, we aren't here to make the world love us. Do you know that? Newsflash. Christians are not here. We, we were not brought here to make the world love us. In fact, Jesus says, they will hate you and speak all kinds of things falsely against you for my name's sake. But if he says, if they hate you, remember that they hated me before they hated you. We were not brought here to make the world love us. We were brought here to make the world fall in love with him. I just want to remind you that tolerance is not love. Love is following the commandments and standing for them. And John says, if you tolerate sin, you are in opposition to the doctrine of Christ. And if you are in opposition to the doctrine of Christ, you are in opposition of the Father. I have a question. Which one is worse? Being passively responsible for the impurity of the Lord's church or being actively responsible for the impurity of the Lord's church? Dun, dun, dun. There's no good answer. Either way, you are responsible for the impurity of the Lord's church. Whether you are actively responsible, actively living the life of sin, actively bringing reproach on the Lord's church, or whether you are passively condoning it. Passively turning a blind eye to it. Whether we passively deny Christ or actively deny Christ, it is still denying Christ. And you can see that lived through the life of Peter and Judas. One of them passively denied Christ, and one of them actively denied Christ. And the result was the same sin. What does it look like to passively deny Christ, though? Because I think in this auditorium tonight, I think, I don't know if there's that many people in here that are actively denying Christ, living a life of sin. Perhaps there are, and, and, and perhaps there's not that many. But I, I know that there probably are some that are passively denying Christ. So, so what does that mean, and, and what does Second John have to say about that? Well, when it comes to passively denying Christ, I think we see that every day. Some of us passively deny Christ without even realizing it, without even thinking about it. You know what, parents? Parents, I know that that there's going to come a day where you want your child to become somewhat of a friend. Right? We see that. A child gets old enough and... A child gets to the age where you don't need to discipline them as much anymore. You simply just want to be friends with your children. 
I think we can all understand what that is, and we've seen that lived out in our friends or whether it be in our lives. But as parents, if we sit on the sidelines as cheerleaders to our children's sin, we are just as guilty as they are for the committing of sin themselves. Grandparents, I know you want your grandchildren to love you. I know how much you, 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 you love your grandchildren. But if your grandchildren are living a life of sin, and you don't try to do something about it, you don't try to say something about it, we could perhaps be just as guilty as they are for living that life of sin. I have another question for you. How many times have you given a heart or a thumbs up to something that sent Jesus to the cross? Man, have you thought about that? Have you thought about how many times that, that, that you've pressed like on something that Christ had to die for? We see it on social media every day. It may be that parent who, who sees their child posing half-naked on social media. But because they are my precious little angel, i got to give that heart reaction. It may be a grandparent who, who sees their grandchild drinking alcohol on social media. But because it's my grandkid, i got to give him a thumbs up. It may be a friend who, who, who sees their best friend in the world tell the whole world that they are going to actively engage in living in a homosexual lifestyle. But because they're my best friend, got to support them with this heart reaction. 2 John says, look to yourselves. That we do not lose those things we have fought for, that we have worked for. 2 John says, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Brethren, we do not stand up for the truth. We are not walking in it anymore. When we thoughtlessly react positively on things that put the nails in Christ's hands, when we give a big old thumbs up on the things that tore our Savior's back open, we are telling the world, I support this. I condone this behavior. I agree with what I am seeing with this. I, I am okay with this. Brethren, it's not just a reaction. It's an affirmation. And it's an affirmation that confuses the whole world on what it means to be Christian confuses the whole world on what it means to follow the Bible if a Christian can react positively to a life of sin then what's the point of being a Christian 
Brothers and sisters, let's make sure that we are not losing that which we have worked so hard for. And remember that love without truth was never love to begin with. Lastly, in the book of 2 John, you're going to see him reassuring the church. In verses 12 through 13, he says, Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. I love how after such a difficult section of Scripture about removing the impurity from the church, John follows it up with such, such a reassuring thought to conclude his message. And in this thought, he, he reminds them how much he loves them and how much he cares for them and, and how much he misses them and how much more he wants to say to them, but not with paper and ink and, and, and pens, but in hugs and embraces and in smiles. And that brings us to the, the end of 2 John. 2 John is a letter of reasoning, a letter of reminding, a letter of removing, and a letter of reassuring. But what does it matter to me? How does the book of 2 John matter to me? Well, that, the question you have to ask yourself is, do you need reminding that a Christian walk, a Christian life, is a life in truth and love? Have you forgotten what true love looks like? The question for us tonight is, do we need to remove the worldly influences and relationships from our lives? The question for us tonight is, is have we been idly by watching the, the, the impurity of the Lord's church? Have we been sitting idly by as cheerleaders to our friends' sinful lifestyles or to our own sinful lifestyles? Have we been bidding God speed to what sent Jesus to the cross? When you look at the book of 2 John, perhaps tonight you need to be reassured in some way. 2 John may only be one chapter, but it might be the perfect book for what you're going through in your life tonight. I don't know what you're going through in your life. Only the Lord does. Only the Lord knows your life. He knows your heart. He knows what you've been through. He, he knows what you're struggling with. He, he knows just what you need. And He is the one that says, Come. As together we stand and sing for your encouragement.